Do you ever wonder if uh, Jesus can really relate to you? Uh, you can hear people from time to time say something like, well, it wasn't really possible for Jesus to sin, so what does it mean that he was tempted? And we sort of developed this attitude that there was something about Jesus, and because he was God, I guess, he doesn't really know what it's like to be us. The text of scripture we're going to look at this morning denies that proposal in the strongest possible terms. This is the scripture that says he was tempted in all things just as we are. You see, the scripture does not teach that Jesus did not understand how hard it was to be you. In fact, I believe we will see today that his understanding is deeper than yours. Not because he's God. Not because he's God, but because he's one of us. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Oh my goodness, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I quote this passage all the time because it's the one text also where it says that he was not ashamed to call me brother. I cannot get over that. The Lord Almighty, eternal Son of God made flesh calls me brother and is not embarrassed by that. I'm embarrassed to call certain people brother, but he is not. How can this be? No, I'm not talking about you, Jeff. I saw Jeff, he was over here worried. That... Certain people, I'm quite sure, are embarrassed to call me brother. My own flesh and blood brothers are from time to time embarrassed by that reality, perhaps even now. Well, I kind of jumped in at the end and then in the middle, so let's go to the beginning. We pick this up where we left off last week in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter in verse 18. We'll see how far we can get in this. But we do, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, 
crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's quoting the psalm we just read earlier. Who's saying this? The Son of God. So the psalm is not just about David. It's also about Messiah. David is the prototype of the real deal, Messiah in the Psalm 22. And again in verse 13 now, and again I will put my trust in him, and again behold I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This text in verse 10 begins with the expression, it was fitting. I think I needed to be told because it doesn't seem fitting to me. It was fitting, it was appropriate. You could say it like this, it was only right. It was utterly appropriate that he for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory would perfect the author of their, oh so, Here's a problem we have in the book of Hebrew, in this chapter, in this paragraph in the book of Hebrews. We have to keep track of who he is. There's a lot of pronouns and sometimes it gets a little mixed up. It, who's he, who's him? In this case, him for whom are all things and through whom are all things is God the Father. We know that because in bringing many sons of glory, he perfected the author of their salvation. That would be God the Son. Through sufferings. How on earth is it necessary that God the Son needs to be perfected? He's eternally perfect. He is the perfect son. 
And yet, we are told here, he was perfected. And not only that he was perfected, but that that was utterly appropriate and fitting. Well, this is something you got to figure out. How is it fitting? How's it even thinkable that the Son of God was perfected through sufferings? Was there something missing in the Son of God that suffering supplied? The word perfected means completed, finished. It's the same word, teleos. It's the same word that we find in the perfect tense from the mouth of Jesus himself on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. Now we read here that he himself was finished through suffering. Wow. Well, let's start with it was fitting. It's fitting to God's character and to our situation. Our situation, when you put it together with God's character, makes it fitting that the Son of Man would be perfected through sufferings. It's fitting to God's character. It is the perfect expression of God's character for whom and through whom are all things. Everything starts with him and ends with him. Everything starts with the Son and ends with the Son, too. We Remember, we read that in chapter 1. And it's fitting to get from point beginning to point finishing that the Son would be perfected through sufferings. It's fitting primarily to our situation. How does the character of God meet with the sinfulness of man? How do those two things come together fittingly? The answer is to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. That's how. It is the utterly, perfectly appropriate response to the situation bringing many sons to glory bringing many sons to glory, not just one. One began in glory, many end in glory. So it's fitting to his character, God's character, and to our situation that he would do this, do what? Perfect the author of their salvation. Let's think for a second of this word author because we think of it as somebody who writes a book or something, yeah? But there's more to it than that. This is, this is a word you could use to say uh, someone who started a company. He's the founder of the company. And so Christ is the founder of our salvation, the pioneer. He's the leader. That's what this word means. He, He goes ahead of us, and you know this word is used again in the book of Hebrews later on in chapter 12. He's the author, or the founder, or the pioneer, and the finisher 
Oh, that's related to this word, perfected, finished. He's the author and the finisher. He's the leader of the way, the trailblazer. He, by going this way, makes going this way possible. How? Through death to life. Through death to life. So he is perfected through suffering and suffering, the suffering of death. So the author of our salvation, the pioneer of our salvation, the trailblazer of our salvation, the founder, leader, the one without whom our salvation would not exist, was perfected. What is perfected how? He's perfected through sufferings. Now the word perfected here means to be complete, to be finished, to be fully built, like nothing remains to be done. Like when Jesus said, it is finished. He's perfected. We still have this problem, though. How is the eternal God perfected? How can that even be an issue? Well, the answer is this. In his perfect humanity, that's how. You see, if he isn't one of us, this is not possible. He's perfected as a human being. He is, once he's endured the cross and raised again, he is perfected humanity. Restored to life from death. That's new. He's perfected as a human being through his complete sharing of our condition, including death. Since we were lost in sin, death is the reality of our condition. For it's universal. No one escapes. And the Son of God, eternal life, becomes a man, including dying. He's perfected as a human being through his complete sharing of our state, even death. He's perfected as a human being through his initiation of resurrection. The scripture calls him the firstborn from the dead. He is, in this way, the leader, and we'll see this repeated in the book of Hebrews, who has broken down the barriers between us and God and now leads us in resurrection to the very throne room of God where you and I now can enjoy fellowship with Almighty God even though we are sinners because He has been perfected and we come with Him. He's the author and the finisher 
He completed the task. He completed the task. And we'll see how that makes his endurance greater than ours. You see, Jesus completely identified with his people. We see this, it says here, for both he who sanctifies, now he is speaking, I believe, of Jesus, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. He completely identifies the sanctifier and the sanctified, the one who makes holy and those who are made holy are all from one stock. He's the son and he leads many sons to glory. He restores us as his sons, as the sons of God. In him we are adopted into the family of God so that, it says here, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call me brother. You should, don't, don't do this, but you should fall down on the floor when you hear that. Because you needed to be sanctified. And he, by becoming you, leads you back to the Father. He calls them brothers. He calls, this is prophesied in the psalm we read, he calls us brothers. And in Isaiah chapter 8, the church, the remnant of Israel, he calls his brothers. <sighs> Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him you see, when Jesus died, he totally trusted God. And he did that the same as you, as a man. And what this text tells us is it, it was no supernatural assistance for him as the son of God to do so. He had laid aside the exercise of the privileges of his deity. And he lived as one of us. And he died as one of us. There's no other way to die. And he died as one of us. And when he does that, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. No, your will, not mine. When he prays like that and when he allows himself, he lays down his life, when he allows himself to be nailed to a cross, he is utterly trusting in the Father. Apart from the work of God to raise him according to their plan and promise there's not he's done he completely trusts 
I will put my trust in him, he says. And behold, I and the children whom God has given me. When I stand before God, all I can say is, I'm one of those. I'm one of those, the children God has given to Christ. So he says, I'll put my trust in him. I say, I'll put my trust in him. I don't put my trust anywhere else. Not in what I can do. Not in whether I bring anyone with me. Not in anything else but him. Therefore, he says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He joined the fellowship of flesh and blood. That word shared, he shared. (laughs) Sorry, I lost my place here. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The word share is the same word that we use for the word fellowship. Koinonia, fellowship. He participated in the fellowship of flesh and blood. He was born a man. He became one of us. And he did so that through death he might render powerless and so forth, through death. He did so in order to die. Because we share in flesh and blood, so did he. He entered into our embodied fellowship. He was as much a human being as you or I. In fact, the scripture says there was nothing particularly special about him as a man. And so he subjected himself to death by becoming one of us. It's crazy. That he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil, and might free those who fear, who through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. So he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become, become, become a merciful and high priest, The eternal Son of God is not a merciful and high priest until he joins the fellowship of man, until he becomes one of us, until he is born to Mary and grows up in Nazareth, until he is that baby in a feed bucket, 
He cannot be a faithful and merciful high priest, but he is now because he did. The incarnation makes the atonement possible. My sins are dealt with because he is one of us. He is like me and you. He's a man. His death renders Satan powerless. Did you hear when we were reading Psalm, the Psalm 22, the expressions of the roaring lion? You know, Peter quotes that text also when he calls the devil. He says he's like a roaring lion going around looking for someone to devour. Well, here's something. He partook of the same that through death he might render powerless, powerless him that had the power of death. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, where's your sting, death? I can die and I'll still be alive. Death has nothing on me anymore. Satan has nothing on me at all anymore. Powerless, powerless. So Martin Luther writes this great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and he talks about all the worlds full of devils and the, the devil, and surely we will be doomed if we just go up against him because his might exceeds ours, but he has been rendered powerless. So Martin Luther says, one little word shall fell him, and the little word is Abba. Abba, oh daddy, the devil seems to be bothering me. Abba, and that tiny word, the devil is done. So when you go to resist the devil, you do not bring any resources to the table. You just call on the one who has rendered him powerless. That's all. His death has freed us from slavery to sin and death so that we might be free. He might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You were slaves to sin. In Christ, you are no longer. You have been purchased. You have a new master. So Romans 6 says, so now that you're not a slave to sin anymore, and that's a fact. That's not even, it's not even possible that you would be a slave to sin anymore in Christ. You are not. And so instead of continuing to do what sin wants you to do, just give yourself to God and become an instrument of his righteousness in the world. That's a reality. Because he was born and lived and died and was raised and is now seated at the right hand of God, the man, Jesus. His death renders Satan powerless. His death frees us from slavery to sin. Now we come to this tricky passage in verse 16. Assuredly, he does not give help to angels. 
And what we need to notice is that he has shifted here. This is now referring to God the Father again. Now here's how I know. He says, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed or descendant singular of Abraham. And the descendant singular of Abraham is Jesus. You can read this specifically in Galatians 3.16 where Paul just says that flat out. The seed of Abraham is Jesus, Messiah. And now we're back into a reminder of that comparison between Christ and angels. No angel is raised. Christ is raised. Christ is born again from the dead. Christ has, was dead and is alive. The Father doesn't help angels in this way. He helped the Son in this way. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. What does a priest do? Well, here it is. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. Well, that means he satisfies God's judgment on behalf of the people. He satisfies God's judgment. In his death, God no longer requires yours. Because he died, God no longer requires you to die. Because he experienced some kind of isolation from God, you can live in eternal fellowship with God, which is to be alive. Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Fellowship with God is life. So, he has made satisfaction for the sins of the people. We read about that in the first three verses of the book of Hebrews, right? When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand. And here, he says it again. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. All of this is because he was made like his brothers in all things. In all things. And so we come to this idea of his his ability to assist us in the temptation of suffering. He was tempted in what he suffered. That's the garden prayer. That's if there's any way out of this. And to what degree was he suffering in his battle with sin? 
He was suffering to the degree of sweating blood. I don't, if, if I didn't read about that, I wouldn't know it was possible that someone could be so stressed. You see, it was not easy for Jesus to resist temptation. You know, I find it easy to resist temptation. You know how I do it? You know how I avoid the suffering of temptation? Give in. It's easy. You don't have to tempt me that hard. I just give in. If you cause me a little bit of suffering, I'll do whatever you want. It's easy. I don't take it very far. That's what we read about in Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, the pioneer, and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How hard was resisting temptation for Christ? Pretty hard. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Well, that reminds me of Psalm 22. All those people, all that hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggling against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, the argument of the book of Hebrews is not that it was easy for Jesus to resist temptation. He resisted temptation just exactly the same way you do. By trusting God. And he took it all the way. So I think the argument of the book of Hebrews is actually for Jesus, it was more difficult to resist temptation than it is for you because you don't let it go that far. Yet. Does Jesus understand your situation? <laughs> well, here's the thing. The eternal Son of God, the all-knowing one, entered into your situation. He didn't just analyze it from heaven. He partook in the fellowship of flesh and blood. He didn't stand back and, you know, he could have said, I understand everything perfectly. No, he became one of you. So you cannot dispute his compassion. He totally gets it. Now, I don't know what 
you're dealing with these days. Something. Something. This world is full of suffering, and you get a little bit of it every day, and some days you get a lot. One day you'll die. Your merciful and faithful high priest knows. Knows. And not because he read about it in a book, but because he was in it himself. That's our Savior. And so when we understand who Jesus is, this is the point of the book of Hebrews, when we see him, we persevere in faith in him. It could be this morning, this is the first time you've heard any kind of clear presentation of what Jesus has done. In which case, I encourage you, trust him, trust him, trust him. To reconcile you before God, there's nothing really for you to do. It's like he said on the cross, it is finished. He's the author and the finisher. It's done and done. All you do is take it. All you do is receive it. And so if you're here right now and you have not yet received it, well, you're free to do so. And you are a fool if you don't. But he is the finisher of our faith. We trust in him. And I don't care if you've been trusting him for a hundred years already. The thing you need to do today, this week, as you go through the trials and difficulties of this life, the thing you need is to trust in him. Because he has solved your life. He has promised you the same resurrection he experienced, and one day you will receive it if you trust in him. He said, he who believes in me, even if he dies, he'll still live. So where's the sting of death for you, Christian? Gone. 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 So you endure by fixing your eyes on him. Whatever it is you've got to endure. You remember, he knows. He gets it. He is your savior. And he will bring you home. You know, he said it in the book of John, I don't lose a single one of those, what do you call them? Children whom God has given me. Do you see the freedom of resting in that reality? You can be bold. <laughs> you can be a bold Christian. You, you can even, as Martin Luther put it, sin boldly. I don't recommend it. But the solution is, is complete. So you can live for Christ. You can pursue love. Love, man, that is risky. But you don't, there's no downside for you in Christ. Go for it. It was fitting 
for him for whom all whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings father we give you thanks lord i just feel completely inadequate to explain this stunning reality of your grace in Christ. So Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would minister to our souls, to our hearts, to our minds, to really get it, to take it a little deeper, to see it a little clearer, to follow him, to trust him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.